Good morning, brothers and sisters. Well, if you're anything like me, you're praying for the end of daylight savings time, so we'll continue to offer this up. It's appropriate that during this season of Lent, we have another thing to suffer. The clear theme throughout our readings on this third Sunday of Lent is the human heart. If you're ever unsure exactly what the church wants you to focus on in regards to the daily readings, the mass readings, always go to the responsorial psalm and read the response. What was our response today? If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Harden not your hearts. And the psalm was taken from Psalm 95. And one of the lines is quoted in this psalm is, Harden not your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the desert, when your fathers tempted me, they tested me, though they had seen my works. That was our first reading. God has delivered the Israelites through many miraculous signs and through great power out of slavery in Egypt. He's proven himself to them time and time again. Now he's leading them through the desert, and they ran out of water. And so they start complaining to Moses. We're all dying here. Our animals are going to die. It would have been better if we were just slaves in Egypt because at least we wouldn't have died from dehydration. So they start complaining, and Moses is a little worried. So he comes to the Lord, and he's like, Lord, you better do something quick. They're going to stone me. God instructs Moses, you see that big rock over there? I'm going to go stand on it. You get the staff that I gave you from your brother Aaron, and I want you to strike the rock in front of the people of Israel, and I will make water flow from a stone. And that's what happened. Now, the words Meribah and Maser, these are Hebrew words. That's what they called this place, Meribah and Massa. Those two words are like any name. They have other meanings. The actual use of those words is basically testing and temptation or trials. It wasn't that necessarily God was trying them on some level that is true, but it, they attempted to test God. God was offended by this. What have I not done to prove myself to you? Look at all of the great deeds I've already performed and you don't think I'm gonna provide something simple like water for you? What are you so worried about? Why are you so afraid? And the reason he wanted to bring water from a rock, the reason he wanted this to be the means by which he would provide for his people is because, as we're taught by the rabbinic scholars and the, the Catholic fathers of the church and the saints, that it's the human heart that is hard like a stone. But if you allow him, God can bring living waters, even from a stone, flowing waters that can nourish his people. God is that powerful. But obviously, we should not be hard of heart. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. In our gospel, Jesus with this Samaritan woman is clearly trying to reach her heart. He wants her to believe in him, to put her faith in him because he is the Christ and the Savior, and he can save her from her sins. But if you can imagine, he who has come to save all of us to remove our sin from us, he needs to basically have our permission to do it. Jesus cannot take your sin from you unless you offer it to him. But what if you refuse to admit to your sin? 
If Jesus had just showed up to this Samaritan woman and said, look, you adulterous (laughs) so-and-so, repent, or I'm not going to save you. That would not have convinced her of his love and mercy. And so what does he do? In essence, he, he doesn't trick her. That's the wrong way to put it. But he very slowly, very gently brings her to a desire for something that he can offer her. So he begins by asking her for something, something that she can give. Hey, could I have some water, please? She's surprised by this, of course. No Jewish man would ever ask a Samaritan woman or any Samaritan for anything. These peoples did not love each other. So she's confused. And he says, oh, you think you're confused by this? Right? If you knew who I was, you'd ask me for living water. I'd give you water and you'd never be thirsty again. Now she's really intrigued. Again, she's only thinking about earthly water, her earthly needs. And she thinks, I would love to have this water. I'd never have to come back to this well again. I'd never be thirsty again. This would be great. Can you, can you give it to me? She has no idea what Jesus is really talking about. So he's using this kind of imagery, and he's using the natural desires of her heart to win her over. And so now he's got her hooked. Now she's interested. Now she wants something from him, although she doesn't really realize what it is. That's when he turns the tables on her. Okay, fine, you want this living water, I will give it to you if you go and get your husband and come back to me. You see, he he already knew, he's the Christ. He knew all of her sins. And at that moment, she had a choice. Do I lie to this man? Or do I tell him the truth? Well, she told him a half-truth. I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're not lying. That is true, you don't have a husband because you've had five and the one you're living with now in sin, you're not married to. At this point, she realizes this is not a normal conversation. And she says, you have to be a prophet. The moment she realizes this, she completely changes the nature of the conversation. And she talks about worship of God. We were just talking about water a moment ago. What changed? she realized who Christ was. You see, the greatest desire of her heart was worship of God, even though she was a sinner, even though she was far from God in many respects. You see, our Lord lovingly deceived her, won her heart over. And once she came to believe in him, what did she do? She ran out and told all of her family and friends so that they would come and meet the Christ and come to believe in him as well. You see, hardness of heart is the main problem in our relationship with God and in salvation, but it's also the main problem in our relationships with one another. It's most clearly experienced in marriage when you harden your heart against your spouse. Why do you do this? Well, for for several seemingly justified reasons. They keep hurting you over and over again, in the same way. And you try to love, you try to forgive, you try to be patient, but after a while you're like, I can't do this anymore. This is just too painful. I'm done. So even before you end the relationship officially, you close off your heart. I always like to think that the heart is like a light switch. It's either open or it's closed. It's on or it's off. There is no middle ground. 
You can't have your heart open to some and closed to others. It is either open to all and God or closed to all and God. So the moment you close your heart off to anyone, especially a spouse, guess what? It's now hard, like a rock. Nothing flows from a rock, at least not naturally. So your heart dries up, it dies. It ceases to love the Lord, it ceases to love your spouse, it even ceases to love your neighbor and your children, all of it. You can delude yourself for a time thinking, oh no, I still love some of these people. No, at that point it's corrupted, it's all tainted and perverted. None of it is true love. It's not how the heart works. So how do you overcome that hardness of heart? Well, in the Old Testament, what did God do? He struck the rock to break it open. Is that what Jesus did with this Samaritan woman? Did he walk up to her and just slap her across the face? Repent, you sinner. No. So gently, so carefully, he won her over. That's what he wants to do with each of you. This is not easy. To love like Christ is to have a very sensitive heart. You know, th this is the, the essence of the incarnation. God can't suffer. He can't. No pain can come to the Almighty because he's the Almighty. Nothing can hurt him. Did you know God isn't sensitive? He's not. He's not sensitive at all. Why? Because nothing can hurt him. He is immovable and perfect and good in all things. But he wanted to be sensitive for us. So what did he do? He sent his son to become like us in all things but sin. God willingly accepted weakness, sensitivity, just to draw near to us, just to win us over like he won this Samaritan woman. And it was because of the sensitivity of the body of Jesus Christ that he was able to be pierced in the heart after he had died on the cross. We're afraid of such weakness and sensitivity. We're afraid of the pain that oftentimes in this world of sin it brings. And so what do we do? To try to protect ourselves like a some defense mechanism, we harden our hearts. We become all dried up and withered. And then there's no love in us, not for God and not for neighbor. There is a way our Lord can win over your heart. And he does it in the same way that he won over the Samaritan woman. But he always does it gently. He doesn't come outright and just demand repentance from you, even though that's what he needs. He has the ability to change your hard heart into a fleshly heart. But he won't do it against your will, without your permission. You must ask him, you must invite him to do it. There's a rule that you have to understand between the head and the heart. The heart is, generally speaking, weaker and more immature than the head. What I mean by this is you can know a lot of things, be very intelligent, lots of knowledge, understand the truth, and what you should be doing in your life. But because of the weaknesses of your heart, you continue to go on and sin and sin and sin. And I'm not picking on you. I do it too. We all do it.
And what happens to us usually, especially as Catholics, when we know what is good and right, what God expects of us, and yet because of the weakness of our hearts, we don't do it. The hardness of our hearts, we don't do it. But then we start beating ourselves up. Gosh, you're so terrible. How can God forgive you? You just keep going back to the same old sin. Look at what Jesus did for you. Don't even you care about him? <laughs> you're basically like trying to break up your heart to make it soft again, but all you're doing is making it harder. That's not how the heart works. You can't win the heart over that way. The heart can only be won over by gentleness, by sensitivity, by compassion. The way you can understand this is actually in your relationships. This is especially true between parents and children. Oftentimes, parents, we know what's right and best for our children, and we want our children to, to believe those things and to do those things. But sometimes children, because they don't understand and because they're afraid, they're like the heart. So you're the head of the home, they're the heart. They're more immature, more sensitive. But what happens when you push a child and demand that a child fulfill your expectations? The child may go along for a while, but eventually they will rebel and completely turn against you. Why? Because that's not the way you treat a heart. But you do it to yourselves. You try to force yourself into virtue. I'm just going to make myself do the right thing. And maybe four, five, maybe seven days, like during Lent, yeah, you're doing those penances. You're just willing it. I'm going to make you submit. And then what happens? You come to Father, I broke my penance. Surprise, surprise. You're surprised. I'm not. I learned this lesson long ago. You can't force your heart to conform to truth. It must be won over gradually, just like a child. That's how God wants to win us over, gradually, with patience and long-suffering. But again, this isn't easy, because we want to fix the problem now, whether that's in our children or in ourselves. That's not how God loves. God is infinitely patient. He will wait as long as it takes for you and for me to turn from sin and grow in holiness. And he will forgive us over and over and over again. If we can hold on to this and realize the great patience with which he loves us and be patient with ourselves and be patient with others, then there'll be far more peace. So to illustrate a good approach, especially in prayer. I'm going to tell you a story. I've used this before in a homily. I think it's been a while. This happened to me when I was still in undergraduate studies in college at Francisco University. We had a guest speaker come in to give a talk to the men on campus about chastity. And uh, he was a really good speaker. And he came in, and the, the venue, the room we were in, I guess you could say was about this size. And it was packed with pretty much every guy on campus. There had to have been hundreds of us there, and there was standing room only. Like, I was squeezed in the back corner, you know, literally in the corner. There were guys all around me. We wanted to hear him speak, and it was an amazing talk. It lasted like three hours, but we didn't care. And this man's tradition was that at the end of his talk, he would lead the whole group in prayer, just asking for God's grace and blessing upon us as men to help us grow in chastity and holiness. So he asked us all to bow our heads, and I'll never forget this. 
So the whole room, we bow our heads, and he's leading us in prayer. He's just a layman. He's, he's not a priest or anything. And it was a very powerful prayer, like just right to the heart. And as he ended the prayer, he ended with these final words. And we ask this through the most powerful intercession of the Immaculate Mother of God. And the moment the last sound, the last syllable of the last word came from his mouth, the most demonic and terrifying scream began to emanate in the room. Now again, I was in the very back, literally in the back corner. I had never heard before, and I have never heard since anything like this in this world. This sound reverberated in all of the space of the room. Usually, if somebody starts screaming, you can get a sense of where in the room they are. No. I could hear this sound coming from behind me and below me and above me and in front of me. It was everywhere filling the space. Every man's head in that room looked up and we were all looking around to see where was this coming from. Nobody could tell. All of a sudden, young college guy in the front row begins to thrash, throwing chairs across the room. He was possessed, and the demon manifested at that moment. About a third of the guys ran, not screaming, but terrified from the room. <laughs> I did notice that some of them were like the big weightlifter guys too, so I was like, ha, doesn't work for you, does it? <laughs> the rest of the priests that were there at the talk basically ran forward, and the guy from the stage who, who gave us the talk literally dove off the stage and tackled the guy <laughs> and was holding him to the ground until the priest got there. And they started performing an exorcism. So after a few minutes, uh, another third of the guys were just so disturbed from what they were hearing and seeing. Because again, it was, I don't watch horror movies. I think they're bad. But no horror movie could come close to the reality of a full demonic manifestation. It is, the sound alone is terrifying. It is inhuman. And so then a th another third of the guys finally left. And I stayed there. I got up my rosary and I was praying. And an idea came to me, I think it was from the Lord, that many of the guys staying in the room watching were not watching because they were praying. They were watching out of curiosity. And the idea came that this curiosity is actually feeding the demon. It's actually hurting the exorcism. Get them out. And so I stood up and I started like shaking guys' shoulders and say, come on, we're going to go to the Adoration Chapel. And I got as many as I could. We walked across campus to the Perpetual Adoration Chapel. And it was a very small chapel. You could maybe fit 20 people in there comfortably. But I have no idea. 100 people were crammed in. And I was v all the way up in the front against the sanctuary step, kneeling down. We were all just praying quietly before the Blessed Sacrament for the, for the young man and for the exorcists. And a voice said to me, and I heard it as clearly as I'm speaking to you right now. It said to me, David, lead everyone in the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Clear as day. Now, I knew the Divine Mercy Chaplet forward and backward. No big deal. I could do that easily enough. But at that time in my life, public speaking was one of those great terrors and fears. Okay, I, The idea of having to stand up or lead anyone in anything absolutely scared me to death. So here I am kneeling there, 
And God just spoke to me. One, I just witnessed a demonic manifestation. That's one thing. And now God just spoke to me. So two miraculous events, in essence, <laughs> in a matter of a few hours. So the Lord said, David, lead them in the divine mercy chaplet for the exorcism. And I had no doubt in my mind or heart it was the Lord. But because I was so terrified about public speaking, this is what I said. Please, Jesus, find someone else. <laughs> That's what I said. And right after I said it, the man who was on my left, literally leaning up against me, because we were all crammed into this adoration chapel, stands up and he says, you know, I think we should pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. And I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I don't have to do it, right? So I was so consoled. So we prayed the Divine Mercy Chaplet. A bunch of us stayed for a while in adoration and then went back to my dorm room. Now that night as I was getting ready for bed after my prayers, a thought occurred to me. Obviously, they had, this had been quite a night, <laughs> very significant. And I realized that God, I didn't just get a sense that God wanted me to lead others in prayer. Like he actually, I, it was a locution. I actually heard him audibly speak to me. And I basically said, no. I said, I can't get that back. I mean, I want to do the will of God. That's my desire. But in my weakness and fear, I basically said, no, Lord, find someone else. Please, not me. And I was really worried. I couldn't sleep. I thought, you know, is the Lord offended? Obviously, it's a lost opportunity. I'm never going to have that moment again to do his will. And I was very upset. I began to pray about this. Lord, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said no to you. Please, I don't know what's wrong with me. I became distraught. And at that moment, a memory came up unbidden, it's probably my guardian angel said, hey, remember this. And it was from the book of Exodus. When Moses on Mount Sinai was sent by God to Pharaoh to demand that he let his people go free. And if you remember this story, what did Moses say to God? He said, please, Lord, not me. He says, Lord, I I'm not really good at public speaking. Could you choose someone else? <laughs> In essence, that's exactly what Moses said. And what did God say? That's it, Moses. I hate you. Get out. I'll find somebody else who will do my will. No. The Lord said, okay, I can deal with that. Your brother will speak for you. I'll tell you what to say. You tell your brother what to say. He will say it for you. God made an accommodation, and it worked out perfectly. You see, it occurred to me, God already knew that I wasn't strong enough of heart to do his will in that moment with that request. He already knew before he asked me. So why did he ask me to do something he knew I wasn't ready to do? That doesn't even make sense, does it? Why would he do that? It's not like God was testing me in the sense of, I want to see if David is, is really willing to do my will. No, he knows everything. He already knew I wasn't, so why ask anyway? That almost seems unjust or unfair. You see, God wasn't trying to learn anything about me by making this request of me. He was trying to teach me about myself. You see, I didn't realize 
how weak of will I was. I didn't understand how much this was a problem and how I needed to grow and change. And so God in his love and mercy made it known to me. He helped me to realize this is an area of weakness in your mind and heart that needs to be corrected. You're too timid. You're too afraid. And so you know what I began to do after that? Every day, praying for the grace so that next time the Lord asks something of me, regardless of what it is, I will not be afraid. I began to seek the grace that I needed because now I understood that I needed it. All because I failed the Lord. We don't have to be afraid of the challenges that God puts in our lives. Oftentimes, he's going to make some request of you knowing that you're not going to be able to do it. So he's not surprised when you're like, no, Lord, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. I can't do it. He's like, yeah, I thought so. Guess what? Now you know that you have a problem. And if you let me, I can help you fix it. Obviously, I'm not worried about leading people in prayer anymore, public speaking. I, I obviously got over that. But would I have if the Lord had not put me to the test in that way, not made it known to me that this was an area in which I needed to grow and change? For each of us, again, in our lives, he is going to push you, ask things of you that he knows you're not going to do, and he's okay with that. He'll just find somebody else. But he wants you to desire change, to seek it, to find healing and strength and growth and courage, above all courage, to no longer be afraid of what love would cost you, of what the will of God will cost you, and to be able to pay whatever price. But if you continue to live in darkness, in the hardness of your hearts, then there's no hope. There's no hope for you. So don't be afraid when the Lord puts you to the test. He only does it out of love. He only does it to humble you, to help you recognize your sin and admit to it and seek conversion of heart. That's what Lent is about. Don't worry about all your failings. You think God is surprised by how many times you've messed up your Lenten penance so far? Just get up, dust yourself off, go to confession and try again. That's what matters to him. It's seeking the conversion, not necessarily obtaining it right away. Patience is what is required here. Humble patience with yourself, with your neighbor, in essence, even with God. Nobody usually works according to our timeline, but we have to trust that the Lord has a plan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit,